those user profiles summed up the three different categories. You're either a homer, a zoner, or an owner. This is a very important part of diversity, equity, and inclusion, and it's actually the part that doesn't get spoken about enough. Hi there, and welcome to the podcast No Stone Unturned from Savills. In this podcast, we will tell you all about real estate and ESG in the Netherlands. What are the latest developments in ESG? And what do you really need to know before investing in Dutch real estate? Listening to this podcast allows you to become a real frontrunner. I am Charlotte Harmse, and in this episode, I'm going to talk about diversity and inclusion in the workplace. My guest of today is Nicholas Kasparek, Head of Client Engagement at Unispace and Architect. Welcome. Thank you, Charlotte. It's good to be here. You came all the way from Italy today. How often are you in Amsterdam? Not as often as I'd like to be. It's a beautiful city, but um, once or twice a month. Once or twice a month. And you work on projects across uh, both countries? Um, yes. Uh, currently working on projects across Europe. Um, Amsterdam in particular is a market with a lot of large technology companies that have footprints that also go outside the Netherlands. So it's a strategic market for us to be working in. And do you see any big differences between Italian offices and Dutch offices? Lots of differences. Lots of differences. And I think it comes down to, first of all, the stock availability. When you look at the kind of cities, uh, the buildings that are available in both um, Amsterdam and, and Milan are very different. And that drives the kind of office design in terms of sizes of floor plates and vertical stack. And then when you look at the local culture, um, very different. Um, Italy, I'd say, is a bit more conservative and traditional. So there's still a lot more barriers to break down in terms of creating agile spaces. Uh, offices in Amsterdam have been very modern and progressive even since the late 90s and early 2000s. And um, nowadays we're seeing a, a real acceleration towards um, sort of modern and hybrid workplaces in the Netherlands. And Italy's um, definitely catching up and pushing the boundaries. I think um, what's very interesting is seeing the metrics and the proportions around spatial distribution and When you compare that uh, in Italy and in the Netherlands, you'll start seeing some interesting things like um, how much space is dedicated to eating. Um, we found that a lot of um, offices in the Netherlands actually have larger um, pantries and kitchens. Um, people in Italy go out to eat way more often, so the eating areas tend to be a bit more small and back office confined. And here we've seen more front office, um, large uh, community pantries, um, phone booths is another interesting one. Um, we're seeing way more phone booths. When you look at how many phone booths per person you have in an Italian office, it's higher than other countries because Italians kind of like to talk with a loud voice <laughs> and uh, they, 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 they need a bit more privacy. So th those are just, there's a lot of like little cultural nuances that drive changes in the workplace. But as I said at the beginning, most of it is driven by the stock. Um, you don't have many buildings in Italy with large floor plates that allow you to create these big, Um, open, agile spaces, so you tend to have to work with um, compartments. And on top of that, you have a more traditional workplace culture. I'm very curious also to hear more about a concept of your company, Unispace. It's called Propeller Office. Can you explain me what that is? I can try. Um, <laughs> I'll, it's, a, it's a concept that was actually born uh, at the very beginning of the pandemic. So it, it goes back almost two years ago, and it's a response to a new hybrid way of working, which fundamentally relies on the belief that if you're going to come to the office, it's for a purpose. You're not going to come in and sit down and write emails at a desk for eight hours in a row. 
um, you're going to come into the office for specific um, activities. Um, and when we looked at sort of the user journeys and what would bring someone into the office, we identified three main areas. You're going to come in for the sense of community and to socialize with people. You're going to come in to solve problems and you're going to come in to innovate. And so what we did is we redefined the office as a real sort of destination driven by collaboration and and uh, brand identity. And um, it's a lot less task-based. And um, uh, the propeller office changes a lot based on the industry that you're in. You can apply the propeller framework to legal, to banking, to technology, to media or industrial firms. And what brings all the applications of propeller in common is basically understanding where do people work, when do they want to work, and how do they want to work. And when you look at that, you then split the activities they do and see what can they do from home or remotely effectively, and what are the things that have to happen in person in the office to be more productive. And that just has defined a new kit of parts, uh, new ways of planning space, new ways of putting things together in terms of adjacencies. Something we hadn't seen a lot um, before the pandemic was actually these new hybrid settings, right? Because you're going to come into the office to innovate, you're going to brainstorm, um, but then what if someone's working from home or two of your colleagues aren't in the office? How do you have a collaborative and inclusive brainstorming That's session? difficult. I've been in meetings like that where you have like six people in the boardroom and then three people with COVID working on screen. It's very difficult for them to pitch in on brainstorming discussions. It's very difficult and that touches the topic of inclusivity. Um, are now, you know, are you creating two different levels of collaboration? So, so that's definitely a challenge we're trying to unpack with Propeller. And most of all, what happens after that brainstorming session? Everyone kind of breaks out into smaller groups, does a bit of focus work, comes back together again. And so we're really looking at creating a diversity of settings within the workplace so people can move through them uh, during the day for specific purposes. And how would I recognize walking into an office that I'm in a propeller office. <laughs> See, and, and I, I told you at the beginning, like doing this stuff in a podcast verbally is quite difficult because explaining architecture without drawings, I hope there's not too many people listening draw to this. Me saying, a, draw me a visual in words. I'm a sketch your word propeller. Um, how do you recognize it? I definitely think um, from the moment you walk into a propeller, F, um, into a propeller office, the the energy of, of the front of house and the, uh, the sort of the drawing feeling and effect of it. Um, a propeller office typically at an entrance will have a social and community area which is activated um, and uh, it has that buzz. Uh, it, it will usually have a lot of the amenities placed, placed close to the entrance. So when you get in, you're really getting this feeling of being welcomed, this feeling of activation, services, and um, just very uh, high energy. Is it also part of the propeller office what you told me about a system of homers, zoners, and owners? Is that also part of this concept? It was part of um, the thinking. You know, the, the homer, zoner, owner concept is very interesting. Um, one of our global clients, uh, during the pandemic and after the pandemic, we ran this global workplace survey, and um, over 14,000 people were surveyed on an ongoing basis. And they ended up basically creating uh, user profiles of themselves. And those user profiles summed up to three different categories. You're either a homer, a zoner, or an owner. Homer is someone who is suitable to work from home, is productive. His or her manager is happy. So they're probably going to work from home post-pandemic. Maybe they even prefer to work from home. They probably prefer to work from home. And 
little sir i'm going to open a parenthesis there and i'm going to use the italian example because i'm just more familiar with the data there um over 70 percent of italians live in an apartment which is less than 80 square meters and they have a household of four people so when you look at who wants to be a homer or someone who works from home like uh, just a very natural question is is your home adapt right like is it big enough is it comfortable can you know two parents work from home with you know, two kids, it's, it's difficult. So the whole Homer group of people are people who are comfortable, prefer to work from home, their manager's happy with that, they'll probably come into the office once a month. Um, zoners are people who come in the office maybe two or three days a week, work remotely for the other two. That tends to be majority of the population today. And then owners are people who want to be in the office full time, and they're not uh, willing to give up their own desk or their own office. And when we look at this company, we surveyed over 14,000 people at a global level, it was around 33, 33, 33 percent. Really? That equally spread? So, so they were spread. very, very equally spread. But then when you go into the details of countries, you'll see that in the UK, the percentage of homers was almost 60 percent, um, whilst in Milan it was 40. Uh, and we started analyzing commuting patterns. We started realizing that the cities where commuting tended to be longer and more of a hassle you had higher percentages of homers. We then started cutting the data across seniorities, and we realized that you know the more uh, younger uh, demographics had a tendency to go more into the office, unless they were in technology roles, uh, which were maybe more introverted and they could work from home full time and do their coding from there. Um, but then when you went up sort of the hierarchical food chain, uh, something really interesting started happening. It was almost like there was um, uh, gaps. So you'd have one level of people who wanted to be in the office, the next level of people wanted to work more remotely. Then one level wanted to be in the office. It was almost like a hierarchical disconnection. And do you view the fact that you sort of identify in your company uh, how many homers owners or owners there are and to sort of amend your facilities or your workplace strategy to that, do you find that a part of diversity and inclusion as well? Because, of course, thinking about diversity and inclusion, the most things that, you know, topics that spring to mind are, are gender diversity or ethnic or religious. But um, do you view this as a part of diversity and inclusion as well? That's a... This Accommodating is a to different personas. This is a very important part of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And... Um, it's actually the part that doesn't get spoken about uh, enough because each one of us has a different personality, has a different preference, different lifestyle. Um, and um, if I just take, for example, the category of people who are very introverted, right? Just because you're introverted doesn't mean you're not, you know, ex excellent at your work. Often introverted people produce amazing work, but they're much more comfortable working from home. And all of a sudden their ability to work from home has actually brought way more out of them and, and they're be able to contribute more. So I think in terms of D, E, and I and B, the B is very important because how can you create an environment where everyone belongs? How can you create different kinds of environments where everyone is comfortable to be themselves and express themselves? And I think that's where Homer's owner, owner becomes very powerful because you can understand what your breakup is of your company, design an office to accommodate it or give them homework and kits or whatever kind of tools they need as long as they're happy and productive and uh, but that takes a lot of flexibility on the company side and from your management um, to, to sort of mold to that because you might end up with teams that are very mixed mm -hmm. you know you might have a few zoners a few homers you know and then you 
have to ultimately find a way to bring everyone together. So it's it's I think it's a, a, a challenge for management, but it, it can empower your teams if, if you look at it this way. Because I can also imagine um, that if there's so much to be taken into account, right? You have your, as you call it, your zoners, your homers, your owners. You have gender, you have ethnicity, you have physical disability, you have all these types of personas which you want to accommodate in your office to make sure that they feel included. Uh, can you ever do it right? You, you can try. And I, I think you can do it right um, by being flexible and by agreeing what right means together um, and, and defining targets uh, with the teams and, and creating something very modular, which, which can adapt and evolve. Um, I, I think there are some very good case studies of having gotten it right. I, I don't want this to become a Unispace um, marketing channel, so I'm not going to start dropping names of projects that we've done well. But there are some projects that have worked, and the most successful ones are the ones that have involved the people the most. In every episode, I invite my colleague Iris Kampers to share with us one of her ESG insights. And today, of course, we're talking about diversity and inclusion. Iris, what insight do you have for me today? Well, thank you, Charlotte. And today I would like to talk about a new piece of legislation that was just implemented in the Netherlands. Uh, from the 1st of January onwards, we have a women's quotum in the Netherlands for listed companies where the supervisory board needs to be one third female. So for every male leaving the supervisory board or every job opening, unless you have 30% females already, it needs to be filled with a female. Which is obviously... Um, course for discussion yeah <laughs> Let's just call it can that. i ask you uh, on a personal note how do you feel about this quotum um well for me personally i am not not too experienced with quota to say whether or not it's the right thing to do i know there's a lot of examples about for example in Ger germany or in belgium where different quotums have worked really well to sort of stabilize the or, or to bring the equality or equity back to a normal standard the way it should be to reflect more of the population of a country but um i don't know there's this transition phase whenever you implement a quotum where there's still a lot of inequality where females are used as sort of an excuse or you know just to upgrade the diversity or to create a better picture of what the company would look like or and this happens with any type of diversity and inclusion so um, I've had a colleague from a Muslim background who was always 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 asked to be included in pictures just because the company wanted to show diversity whereas they only had the one person you know I don't, I don't like the transition phase. So I don't know if a quotum is the right way to go. I don't know if it's going to do what we wanted to do. And at Savills, we decided we're not going for, well, obviously we adhere to the law. So if we have to, we'll, we'll work with the quotum. But for us, the focus is much more on a safe working environment and inclusion and diversity across all types of diversity and inclusion. So instead of just looking at gender equality, look at, you know, cultural equality as well, um, age equality as well. You know, there's there's so many different types of sustainability that we want to address and so many types of equality that we want to address. So instead of focusing on are you gay, are you straight, are you male, are you female, just look at 
do you feel safe working here? Do you feel included? Do we need to change something and then do that? Yeah, because that is a challenge, I think, uh, in a lot of companies where you can have a diverse recruitment policy, but then when you attract minority groups, do they feel at home in your organization? And of course, we're talking to that about that today with Nicholas, about how to create a work environment um, that, that everyone feels at home in. Uh, and I think we, we try to do the same um, at Sevos. Can you can share a little bit about uh, your uh, or our <laughs> ambitions on that um, on that field? Yes, definitely. So um, we have signed the Charter Diversity with a focus on gender equality because that is the first thing that we are addressing on paper. So we have said that we want to upgrade uh, or we want to up the amount of females in fee earner positions. Other than that, we have um, different um questionnaires so to say to ask our employees about do you feel safe in this working environment to make sure that people have access to um anonymized help with regards to mental health physical um health uh, with regard to diversity and inclusion so that they always have a person to talk to um that there's always someone uh who can listen to them who can voice their concerns to for example the board and um, yeah, we're, we're still trying to find that sweet spot of how much focus do you put on a certain type of diversity. We're also looking into um, making changes to our own office to, you know, consider um, different needs from different cultural backgrounds, for example. Um, so we're, we're still very much in that process of, of shaping it and making it better, but all with this one holistic idea in mind of that everyone should feel safe and should be happy to work at Savills. Thank you, Iris, for sharing your ESG insight with us today. Of course, thank you. In every episode, we ask someone from the Savills team to bring us a standout statistic which says something about the topic of the day. Our guest today is Ellen Waals, head of agency at Savills in the Netherlands. Ellen, what is your standout statistic? 42%. And 42% of what? Well, I would like to tell you that moving to a healthy building, we see that there are 42% less complaints on sick-related uh, matters which relate to the building itself. And uh, I've heard about this before. It's a sick building syndrome, right? What, Correct. What, what kind of symptoms do I need to think of? Well, you have to think about headache, uh, dry, itchy, skin, uh, coughing, because you don't have sufficient um, air quality <clears throat> there's not sufficient ventilation for example and uh, people um, feel that their energy is going down and actually get complaints because of it and how can landlords or, or occupiers uh, in their own space prevent this sick building sy syndrome what 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 is a healthy building well, from a landlord perspective, um, in first instance, you will look at a ventilation system. So air quality, obviously, is a landlord responsibility and is very crucial to create a healthy environment. Um, and from an occupier perspective, I would definitely think that to add more green. Uh, more green creates a more healthy experience in the office environment and has a, a good effect, a healthy effect to how people feel um, mentally but also physically and then these are all sort of environmental factors are there any other factors that we need to take into account yes definitely there is there's a huge impact on mental health as well um, so it also helps to reduce stress for example that people feel welcome that they have breakout areas 
that they feel also being feeling inclusive, right? I think that's quite crucial and the working environment can help with that. So stress is an important element, but also feeling um, connected to your working environment, feel at home in your working environment, feel welcomed. And that is definitely a challenge. So I think also interesting from to hear from Nicholas that with such a diverse uh, staff, it will sometimes also be a challenge in design to be able to uh, create that uh, inclusiveness. Yeah, Nicholas, um, connecting the two dots. So... Um um, Ellen Herstad on on sick building uh, syndrome and your uh, all your information on 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 cre creating an inclusive workplace. Do you think that creating an inclusive workplace could also lower these uh, stress um, uh, symptoms? No doubt, it's um, harder to prove scientifically. Um, difficult to measure the correlation between inclusivity and belonging and stress, but. You know, uh, intuitively, my, my answer is yes. If people feel included and, and comfortable in an environment, they're likely to be um, happier and, and to have a reason to go there. So it, um, it, it's definitely a driver. Yeah, and we see that as well with biophilic design. You also pay a lot of attention to biophilic design, right, with Unispace. And bringing nature in the environment also creates an environment where people feel less stress. So, um, yeah, there's... Definitely a lot uh, going on in that sense, definitely compared to a few years ago where nobody paid attention to green in the office or paid any attention to the correlation between uh, mental health and the working environment. And um, yeah, it does sound listening to the both of you that there's a lot of work to be done. Uh, and I expect a lot of renovation and, and, and refurbishments of office space in the coming years. Do you also expect that? Oh, I Hope so. It's a lot of business for Unispace. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, no, j j jokes aside, um, look, in, in the next five years, I firmly believe that most companies are going to go through a refurbishment cycle of, of their office space. Now, some companies are just going to tweak some elements, maybe change some blocks some furniture. Quick um, fixes. Quick fixes, introduce biophilia, improve indoor air quality. Um, other companies are going to have to revisit their portfolio more significantly, create new types of office spaces to cater for different kind of demographics and needs. But inevitably, you know, as, as uh, Churchill said, we shape our cities thereafter they shape us. You know, you spend time uh, creating things and then those things drive our behaviors. Now is the time where the world has changed, our behaviors are changing, and we now need to build different things to, to, to support those. So I think our offices are all going to change in, in, in the soon-to-come future because we have changed. Do you feel the same, Ellen? Yeah, definitely. And what I'm really happy to see is that currently working environments are uh, people-centric environments and that real estate decisions are made uh, from a people-centric perspective. Uh, point of view and that's so different from what we saw a few years ago where real estate decisions are made on, made on cost savings or <clears throat> at least driven by bricks right they need space and therefore they want an environment uh, where they can put their people in and I'm a big believer that the most value asset you have is your people and that the working environment 
has I see such Ni- Nicholas an nodding. Yeah, so a, I think the, you're the on work the same environment has page. the best impact in how these people be productive, how they feel, how they can be happy. So yeah, I'm really happy with uh, what we currently see in the conversation that we have with our clients. Thanks, Ellen, for bringing us this very interesting statistic. I must say, Nicholas, I could talk about this whole day. I feel like uh, my uh, you know my social psychology background and my real estate expertise is finally coming together. But unfortunately, it's already time for the final question. Um, I always ask my guests the same question in the end, and it's about your dream project. So if there was absolutely no boundaries in terms of budgets or policies, or what would the ideal project look like? Maybe I mentioned this to you, but... uh on, on the side, I, I have an NGO. I, I founded uh, this project six years ago, and we, we built a school of, of conservation in Nicaragua in Latin America. Um, we then built a few other um, bamboo structures, and uh, I'm a big believer of architecture um, for communities who don't really have access to the kind of infrastructure, or skills, and tools that, that we have in this part of the world. And um, that's a small NGO that has been a, it's been a passion project for the last six years. And, you know, it's my dream project. I'd love to take something like that to the next level, scale it internationally and, and build a sort of sustainability and educational platform for everyone. Uh, Latin America, Africa, Southeast Asia, Europe as well. Uh, sustainability is very much needed. And we are introducing it in the office space, but to really bring it grassroots, we need to drive it through education, um, change the way we, we, we teach and create places for, for people to come together and learn. Um, and this is most of all needed in um, you know many parts of the world that aren't as fortunate as Developed ours. Developed so. countries, yeah. yeah. So you're actually already realizing your dream project. I, it's, it's a little... At the moment, it's a little portion of the dream. Yeah, you need to start. Uh, you need to start somewhere. But I think it's really uh, cool that you're all working on your dream, uh, working on your dream projects, of course, uh, during your daily job, but also working on your uh, real dream on the side. Yeah, and, and Unispace has been very kind and accommodating to give me the the time to do that. They allow me to take a little bit of extra time off um, to to go work on on my charity and. It's exciting to see that some of the projects we're doing there, uh, for example, there's this uh, local women collective we work with called Las Theodoras. They collect plastic bags from the beach, they shred them and they sew them. And they create bracelets, they create carpets, they create curtains out of garbage. And um, we've now started mentoring these women and we've created a new line of recycled plastic interior products. And the more of those we sell and we put into offices, the more plastic we're moving from the beach, the more income we're giving to these women. So it's like a impact-driven workplace product. And to see the impact that a company like Unispace or Savills can have by just passing a little bit of our intellectual property to these communities and, and giving them skills and tools to take what they already know how to do and take it to the next level... Um, is quite impressive. Uh, one of the rugs that, that's been produced lately is a two-meter diameter um, multicolor rug made out of 1,600 plastic bags, and it was featured at the Milan Design Week last year. This this local women collective in Nicaragua, they felt like they'd won the Oscar. Yeah, like They were imagine. like, what? We're at the Milan Design Week? They all dressed up. They were on Zoom for the event. They were, you know, and and like the, they're these little things. I, I, you know, I don't want to go off on a tangent, but 
the corporate real estate world is not so far from the sustainable development world. There's actually as crazy and, and maybe, you know, far-fetched as this can sound, there's points where we come together and, and I think we can create more synergies to, to benefit uh, both sides of the world in the future. I think that is a wonderful note to, to end on. We have learned today that actually you can make an office uh, accommodate diversity and inclusion. Probably we will need to refurbish a lot in the years uh, to come, but that will actually make your jobs uh, more uh, interesting and fun. In the next episode, we will talk about the impact of real estate on our communities. How important is community building when developing a real estate project? What do the neighborhoods of the future look like? Please subscribe to this podcast when you don't want to miss a thing and give us a rating in your favorite podcast app. My name is Charlotte Harmse and this was No Stone Unturned.